Welcome to Built by a Boss. I'm your host, Evelyn Brooks, journalist, award-winning producer, author, founder of In My Solitude LA. On this podcast, you'll meet my favorite epidemiologist, Dr. Tiffany Gary Webb. She's the first African-American woman to receive tenure at the University of Pittsburgh, where she's an associate professor in the departments of epidemiology and behavioral and community health sciences at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health. We're talking today about the adverse impact of COVID-19 on African-Americans, herd immunity, mandating vaccines, global cultural differences, and how altruism may be the key to our collective public health as more stay-at-home orders are lifted around the country. Here's Dr. Tiffany Gary Webb. Enjoy. So, hi, Dr. Tiffany Gary Webb. How are you? Good. Hi, how are you? I, I'm so excited that <laughs> I'm talking to you today. And full disclosure, before we get started, so Dr. Tiffany Gary Webb, it's, it's funny for me to say it because I know you as Tiffany, you are my cousin, um, but I'm so honored to talk to you today about this issue of COVID-19. First of all, I have to brag about you. You're the first African-American woman to receive tenure at the University of Pittsburgh. Is that not correct? Yes, it's, it's correct. <laughs> I mean, just like so amazing. And also the great thing about being able to talk about COVID-19 is that I can go to someone in my family and actually ask these questions without feeling like, sometimes you feel like I should know this, but I don't. And so I feel like I'm having a conversation with you, the conversation that everybody wants to have because we're just a little confused about some of the things that are happening. Mm -hmm. So now tell me a little bit about your background because I know that you're a tenure professor, but you also work with uh, epidemiology, and then community health sciences. So explain all of that for us and help us understand what is the public health? Yes, yeah, so I'm an epidemiologist. And basically what that means is that we study epidemics. Now I think the public is getting a little bit better idea of what an epidemic is. We're in a pandemic, which means you know a global epidemic. I study um, actually chronic diseases. So Right now, where the pandemic we're seeing is an infectious disease, a virus. What I do in my daily life is I study epidemics of chronic disease, so things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And I try to understand particularly why there are differences in those chronic diseases for African-Americans and other ethnic minority Groups. So I tend to look at some of the social factors. So um, I look at things like neighborhood environment, racism, and access to resources, and socioeconomic status. So you like your income and your education. So that's really what I do in my daily life. But um, being trained as an epidemiologist, we get training in infectious diseases and um, in chronic diseases. It's really fascinating because I'm sure after all of the work you put into building your career and studying all of these issues to now be in a situation where you're literally educating all of us about the public health and what that means. Because uh, up until 
this moment, we didn't really understand what the public health meant in a way. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, and it's, I have to say, I'm in that moment too, because even studying something like a pandemic, I mean, I never expected to be in something this bad. I mean, we have lots of different diseases that are always around. I mean, we have flu in developing countries. In other countries, we do see a lot of things like tuberculosis and so forth. But to see something just spread across the world so rapidly, it's just really unbelievable. One of the things that I wanted to say about epidemiology is that it's one discipline within public health. So you asked about public health. Mm-hmm. We have lots of different disciplines. So epidemiology is one of the sciences of public health. We do the research and the counting. We work with um, biostatisticians, biostatistics, another area where they do a lot of the methods and a lot of the data analysis related to the studies and surveillance that we do. But then you have areas like behavioral and community health sciences, people who focus on health promotion and disease prevention in communities, doing outreach and education. We have health policy and management. So we are training up um, hospital administrators and, you know, people who are going to be developing um, policy. Right. Lab-based disciplines under public health too. So infectious disease, and we have human genetics, um, environmental health sciences. So for example, those are the people who are working on the vaccine development. Um, And they've already been working on vaccines for a number of different viruses, diseases. Some of them had had actually been working on vaccines for different types of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're like in the lab trying to develop the vaccines and techniques. So public health is just such a huge field and we contribute so much to the world. And, and, you know, and I think people are just starting to really understand, uh, you know, even just a little bit about what we do. Absolutely. I mean, it is a huge eye opener. And I think the first moment that I realized that we were in a different realm in terms of the public health is initially when the coronavirus kind of started to grow and expand and people were dying. We didn't really understand, well, what's the difference between that and the flu? 80,000, 60,000 people die a year of the flu, and it's never been a big deal. Why is this coronavirus? Why is COVID-19 so much different? Why should we care about it? And so we couldn't understand the numbers because there was a disconnect there, and people were having a hard time really explaining it. And then they started to say, well, if people continue to, to die, we don't, we're not prepared as a healthcare system. We don't have enough respirators. So we're trying to lower the curve. So then we kind of understood that. But just fundamentally, it was never really clear. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have a couple of responses to that. I mean, one, because we have uh, such good public health in the United States, we have good sanitation, we have vaccine, we have access to medications, you know, all those types of things. We sometimes can get a little bit complacent on really what's happening around the rest of the world. And so just because one of our major focuses was the flu and, you know, just seasonal flu, um, in other parts of the world, these types of diseases have been very devastating. So 
the this coronavirus is is named one of the SARS two coronavirus, so the severe acute respiratory syndrome two. So this novel novel virus that we're in now. Um, but there was a SARS outbreak in Asia. Mm-hmm. Years ago, there have been outbreaks of uh, infectious diseases like Ebola and so forth. And we're over in the U.S. and we kind of say, oh, that's happening in other parts of the world. It's happening over there. Exactly. Exactly. Because and so when, you know, SARS came out um, in Asia, it didn't really impact us as much. But with this new coronavirus and with all the travel back and forth, it just really just spread across the world so rapidly. Because with a new virus, nobody has immunity. Right. So with the flu, we have a vaccine for the flu. Right. 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 So that means the people who take the vaccine, we have a large proportion of people who have immunity. So when one person who has the flu the probability of them coming in contact with somebody who's not immune is lower. Right. Well, SARS, we don't have anybody who's, so everybody's susceptible. Right. So that's how it was able to just spread so rapidly. We're really in this situation, and I don't think people understand that. We're going to be in this situation until we get a vaccine and we're able to get a large number of people vaccinated. And then one of the other options is to have a treatment so that at least when people come down with COVID, you know, it won't be fatal. There'll be treatment so that people won't end up um, dying from it. So, you know, a lot of people already have had it. Some people, you know, have had it, have had no symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people have, I mean, most people have recovered. The whole idea of, if you get it, you you know, you have a death sentence. That's certainly not true. Yeah. So we're going to be in this for the long haul because as we, you know, start to go back into society, people are going to get it. Now, our our hospital systems will be able to take care of people. Right. Um, because we did the social distancing, right? We flattened the curve as far as being able to spread the number of cases out. Right, right over a longer period of time. So I think people kind of got a different impression on what flattening the curve meant. It didn't mean it was going away. Exactly. It meant we're we're not going to have this huge spike. So people end up in the hospital. Healthcare workers can't handle it. We don't have enough ventilators. Um, and then healthcare workers get sick and they have to be quarantined and there's no one to take care of people. Right. So so we've been successful in flattening that curve so that the healthcare system can handle it. So now we're just going to have to make sure we don't have these spikes. Right. Which is what's happening. Right. I mean, because now they're opening cities and states back up, more people are being tested. So it makes sense that we're going to see a spike in new cases. Yeah. I mean, we'll see spikes, but I mean, not huge enough that it's going to overwhelm our healthcare systems and people won't get the care that they need. That's, you know, that's, one of the biggest issues is like, now that we've done this flattening, we've given the healthcare system time to prepare. Right. And so from my understanding, it takes years to develop a vaccine. I've read that there are 90 companies out here, (laughs) at least running around trying to find a vaccine or at least an antiviral drug. But how far away I mean, realistically, and even do we even want to be the guinea pigs to take it? So it's it's just tricky. How how likely is it that we'll have a vaccine anytime soon? Yeah. So, I mean, they're saying that it's going to be 12 to 18 months. Rest assured that uh, FDA and so forth, they are going to 
try to fast track some of the procedures. You know, normally we just, we have, you know, three phases of clinical trials um, to do things. My understanding is they can start to approve on phase two of those trials, you know, in emergency settings. Mm-hmm. And then remember, there are other types of coronavirus. There have been people who've been working on things prior to this actual pandemic. The University of Pittsburgh has already gone into a trial with, with a vaccine. Um, I think everybody is on the fast track to get us something. So I don't think it's going to take a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't know if it's going to be less than a year because at the end of the day, we still have to say that it's safe. Well, one, that it's effective and two, that it's safe and that there aren't that many, you know, side effects to it. Well, hopefully that will coincide with what they're talking about as the second wave. Can you explain what they mean by a second wave of infections? Yeah. So, um, we haven't figured this out yet, but, um, everyone was predicting that the virus would behave like a flu virus would. And so it would have a seasonal effect. So we're in May now. In May and the summer months, we would start to see fewer cases of the flu. Mm -hmm. Um, And then come the fall, then we see another spike. That's what they are um, predicting with this, even though we're not sure that the virus actually is going to behave that way. One of the pending questions is now trying to get antibody tests, right? Mm -hmm. So that we can see from a population-based perspective who's actually immune, even though we don't know that if you're immune, then you'll automatically not get the disease again. Um, They don't necessarily know that, but um, there's some evidence saying that 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 might be the case. Well, then we'll know who's potentially immune, right? Mm-hmm. And then those people can be out in society and not be, you know, susceptible. Right. So we're not in a good position to do that type of testing. So we're just now getting to the point where we can ramp up actual testing for COVID, which is going to be a really important part of going back into um, society. Because what we're going to want to do is keep a really good handle on who's testing positive. Mm-hmm. and then who they've been interacting with. So we have a method called contact tracing. Right. And you may have heard of that. So when a case is reported, it's reported to the health department. The health department then follows up on people who have been in close contact with that case. And those people are told to either get tested or isolate. And then hopefully you're you know, kind of reducing the number of people who have been exposed out there in the world. And we're not there yet, which is why there's so much hesitancy to, mm-hmm. to reopen. Um, right. And there's so much tension between scientific professionals and the, you know, the officials, government officials. <laughs> I would say that's an <laughs> understatement. <laughs> that it's tension, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think going to the state capitol with guns drawn oh, is, yeah, is, that's, yeah that's, that's tension. So explain to me this idea of herd immunity, because that phrase has been thrown around a bit and some countries are saying that that's their approach. And how do we even know that that is viable if we can't really test for antibodies and people are asymptomatic? How do you even know if the herd actually um, has reached the peak? So, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the first, the first thing is like herd immunity is not a strategy to this. Right. It's, it's, we want to achieve herd immunity 
for this um, disease. So there are certain diseases, for example, measles. We know that because there's this mandatory vaccination that most of the population is immune to measles. They either already had them as a child, right? Or you've been vaccinated. And so there's different numbers for different diseases on what percentage of people need to be considered immune to to have herd immunity. But like, say it's 80% of people. It means that so many people have been vaccinated or are immune that the probability of them coming in contact with someone, you know, someone who's sick and not vaccinated is very, very low. Right. So we're nowhere near herd immunity (laughs) for Mm -hmm. this particular virus. But again, like you said, we don't even really have any way of knowing that yet because we're not doing community-wide antibody tests for that. So, and because we've been social distancing, Mm -hmm. we basically protected people from getting the virus. Right. So say you get the virus, you get a benign disease, you turn out to be immune. We haven't given people the opportunity to do that because we've all been isolated. So we haven't had the opportunity to even be exposed to the disease exactly. to build up herd immunity. Yeah. And what government officials and so, so forth are saying is we need to let people out to get herd immunity. <laughs> right. You know, so I don't know if you've heard that point yeah. of view. Well, um, but that is not because because of the whole idea of such differences in the response based on age, based on pre-existing conditions, so forth. You know, it's too much of a risk to say, oh, let's everybody, let's everybody get exposed. Mm-hmm. so that we can get immunity. It's just not a, it, it's not smart. And it's, you know, and it's sacrificing the most vulnerable people in our right. society. Right. So and yeah, so just know it's not a strategy, but we want to eventually achieve herd immunity and we will hopefully achieve that with vaccination. Right. Well, then you're going to run into the issue of people not wanting to take the vaccine because no. there's that. And and that's so frustrating because this is what the world is like without vaccines. <laughs> right. You know, that's what I don't understand how people, you know, people can are still not down be with vaccines. No. Yeah, exactly. You can't do anything because your risk of catching an infectious disease and getting severely ill or dying is is is, is extremely high. So I it's it's very hard for me to understand now the anti-vax movement because you know we've already public health of course that's one of been one of our major successes. Right. We we had gotten to the point where we had eradicated, meaning we had wiped out certain diseases. Mm-hmm. So things like measles. Mm-hmm. Measles was considered to be eradicated, but we we've seen in recent years parents have been opting out of vaccinations. All of a sudden, we get measles outbreaks again. Right. Well, I guess everybody was saying that it was causing autism. So then that became the issue. But here's my question about that. In the event that there is a vaccine, where where do you start with the inoculation? What we're, what we're dealing with now is even in their testing, mm-hmm. they have to get volunteers who are willing to be exposed. Mm. And good luck. Yeah, and so young, <laughs> young, healthy volunteers. So, and there are people who were at, who were stepping up 
um, right. to do that. I hope there's some type of mandate, you know, like we've been successful with um, certain diseases because children have to get them, mm-hmm. get the vaccines to go to school. Right. Right. That's a way of kind of getting universal implementation. But there's not a lot of ways to get universal um, implementation for adults. I mean, look where we were with the flu vaccine. Right, right. And and then it's interesting because I'm looking at other countries and they're they're hard pressed to figure out a way to determine whether somebody has it or doesn't have it now, like with the thermometers and the temperatures. It's like, well, if I don't have a temperature today, it doesn't mean that I don't have the virus because the symptoms may still be percolating and they don't show up. For Absolutely. So it's like all of these, it's just very unclear in terms of going forward, what the future looks like without a vaccine beyond social distancing. What other tools do we have to actually protect ourselves? Like, I mean, I'm going to the grocery store and I, and I, I almost said Tiffany. <laughs> But but I'm going to the grocery store and I'm seeing people with masks on, but it's underneath their nose. It's like (laughs) it's supposed to be over your nose and your mouth. So Mm -hmm. it's just it's really like it makes me a little crazy. But here is the, the question that I have. We have so many people that are asymptomatic. Yeah. We have younger people who may or may not get it. We know that the elderly population, they're particularly vulnerable. But then we are looking at a large number of African-Americans who are being heavily impacted by Mm COVID-19. And so we've been hearing a lot of reasons, you know, based on pre-existing conditions, but you have studied so much of that. So help us understand when we're in a in a moment of crisis like this, what impact does a pre-existing condition have on your possibility of getting COVID-19 if you are African-American? Yeah, so let me, um, you know, give you a little more global um, answer to that, because one of the reasons that African-Americans are getting COVID at higher rates and dying at higher rates um, is not just because of the pre-existing conditions. So pre-existing conditions are one of the, the factors. The medical community doesn't really have a handle on all of the pre-existing conditions that could um, impact COVID. Every day there's, you know, something new that comes out because now they're saying, oh, in younger people, there's all these higher incidents of strokes and, you know, so forth. And could this be COVID related? But what we do know is African-American populations have disproportionate rates of these comorbidities to begin with. Explain what a comorbidity is. Excuse me. So um, different uh, chronic diseases. So, you know, as I was talking, things like diabetes, things like heart disease, lung disease, um, so forth. So we already have higher rates of those. And so then coming in, getting exposed to this infectious disease, and that being one of the risk factors for being hospitalized, getting on a ventilator, and eventually death, that means we're coming in with a disproportionate advantage already. Right. And so that's one issue. There's like so many issues. So we are more likely to be some of the essential workers that are out there. 
So mm. people working in the grocery stores, working in, in hospitals, um, out there doing all the essential jobs that are um, keeping all of us alive now and being exposed. And so right. what we saw earlier in this pandemic, when guidance for things like masks and so forth was not very clear, you know, it was clear for people who were direct healthcare workers, right? Um, but grocery workers weren't wearing masks in the beginning. No. Um, people who were out, you know, delivering services to people weren't doing that. So that's also how we ended up being disproportionate in this epidemic is because we were out there without protective gear in these essential jobs and out working. Then we have, you know, just all kinds of other things that from what I study and and my opinion stem from systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Um, So then we have things like access to health care. Yes. So who was getting tested in the beginning? The, the guidelines were if you had traveled to some place out of the U.S. or if you had traveled to Italy, you would get tested. Mm-hmm. So that left a lot of people with symptoms who were going into hospitals not being tested. Right. Um, some people were getting turned away, going in with symptoms, getting turned away. So we know there are the systematic biases in healthcare and healthcare access. So that's another reason. You know, we have this issue of mass incarceration. So now we're seeing outbreaks that are happening in jails, even though they are starting to release people who have crimes where they feel like they could they could release them at least for a while. So there's so many different reasons why we are being impacted by this. And basically, this pandemic just highlighted, exacerbated all of the problems that we've had and and have been trying to bring to the forefront. Right. Um, It exposed a system that was already broken. Exactly. Exactly. But at least in this crisis mode, people seem to be willing to acknowledge it. Please, we've been talking about disparities in in diabetes, and, and that wasn't all over the news. Not often. So at least people are willing to acknowledge it. And I hope that because this is so urgent that they're actually willing to respond. It feels like, though, it depends on what side of the political roundtable you're on. Because for some folks, it's like, well, okay, now we know that the elderly and African-Americans were our most susceptible. So let's just open up, you know what I mean? And then others are like, okay, now that we know who is most vulnerable, we can pour more resources there. But it's it's not an even approach. Yeah, this is where I get set because it's just going to be so devastating on so many different levels because on one hand, we we understand that people are hurting and struggling, um, not being able to work. But the whole idea of sending people out there, who is actually going to be sent out? Again, it's the essential workers that are going to be put to work. If they don't feel safe and then they decide not to go back to work, then they won't be eligible for employment. Not only do we have this huge um, health crisis, we have an economic crisis that's impacting everybody, impacting African-Americans even more. And then what I'm really concerned about too is the ripple effects. Now people aren't really going to the doctor. So all of these things that need to be managed that they've had already, People aren't going in. Are people going to be receptive to all of the new telemedicine approaches where we, you know, do things virtually? People won't be taking care of themselves over this time. So then that'll cause um, non-COVID related deaths, right? 
Mm-hmm. So it's just, it, 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 this is just so devastating from a health perspective, from an economic perspective, from a social perspective. I hope um, our government also invests more in our public health infrastructure, because if we hadn't been so complacent, thinking that, you know, things are happening on the other side of the world and not impacting us, then we would have been a little bit more prepared. And we know that um, for public health, that there's been a disinvestment in public health over especially the past decade since the the last um, recession we had Mm -hmm. where jobs were lost and they weren't, you know, replaced. Right. Well, the CDC was basically dismantled on a certain level. So we were just completely unprepared for it. So let me, let me just ask you this because there are so many misconceptions, conspiracy theories, and, I just want to clear up some of them. Let's just talk about what we know that will not cure COVID-19. <laughs> Nothing will cure it. We don't have anything to cure it. I mean, so, like, you can't, you can't drink, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it, I mean, we all, it's interesting because, you know, I, I have really been reading a whole lot about the immune system and how we can support and balance our immune system. And it was like, it was interesting because it was good to really understand if you needed to, you know, nutrition, sleep, sleep, and, um, and stress. Like those were the three things that you really needed to balance. Basically they were saying that if we're over here stressing about COVID-19 or money or whatever it is we're stressing about, and then the actual virus comes into our midst, our body, our immune system is going to run to fight the stress and leave us vulnerable to the disease. I, I was just like, well, that's why we can't be stressed. You know, it, it just, mm-hmm. it really makes it all kind of come together, how everything connects. So with that being said, the other thing that I think is important to talk about that adds to the challenges we're facing is how our mental health is affecting our public health in this context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here um, in the Pittsburgh area, uh, a couple of nonprofit groups started doing weekly virtual town hall meetings. Today, they were talking about mental health mm-hmm. and how everyone needs to be concerned about their mental health and how we really need to be giving everyone grace during this period because everyone's going to react differently. And this is a crisis. This is not the time to kind of hold anybody accountable for how they're feeling about things. It's like everybody reacts differently. And so we have to really consider that. And and that was the point that got to me because, um, I mean, just think how the children feel. They can't go to school. They can't, you know, talk to their friends. Those are the things that their lives revolve around now, right? Right. And then we're supposed to just say, oh, you know, you, you know, you just have to cope with it. That's such an important piece of it. And so going forward, I mean, we know that it's an uncharted path, but are there some things that you think are important for us to do in the short term and then also to think about in the long term as we kind of move through this period where we don't really know what's going to happen next? We're, we're, I mean, we're hearing like certain symptoms and then you know, there's a new symptom that emerges and it's a frightening time, but it, but also it's an opportunity. But what is your advice for us in the short term and in the long term in terms of managing this crisis? 
So you mean from a personal perspective or from a infrastructure public health perspective? Let, let's talk about both from personal, <laughs> personal perspective and then from a, a public health perspective. Yeah, from a personal perspective, I don't have a good a really good answer for that because I'm, I'm just like everyone else. I'm at home and, and struggling, um, you know, kids are at home. Um, and then being in public health, I've seen my workload increase. So our work has continued, kids and every family and everybody's home. Um, and then now the COVID related responses have added more. Just in that mental health section, people were saying, you know, set boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I have to do for myself is try to not do the, the, the six, seven, eight o'clock meetings. Right. <laughs> you know, they've been emergency meetings and they've been necessary because of the urgency of this. Mm -hmm. um, but trying to set some boundaries because our whole worlds have just been turned upside down. There's no, you know, separation right. between home and work. Um, so that's one of the things that I really want to do for myself. I've also been you know, doing a lot of virtual exercise. So prior to the, to us being at home, I was doing African dance. I'd started doing dance again. Um, after 20 years, we were doing performances and having a lot of fun. So I've at least tried to continue doing some of that virtually, although I find I don't push myself as much. Right, right. <laughs> doing I mean that. So yeah, so, so those types of things. But um, yeah, so that's what I'm going to try to work on in the next couple of weeks, you know, kind of setting boundaries and making sure I'm keeping up my um, exercise program. Got it. Now, in terms of the public health, where some of us are social distancing, some of yeah. us are not, some of us are wearing masks, some of us are not. What is your best advice professionally for how we should carry ourselves in spite of the fact that no state is on the same page with the state next door. Yeah, I mean, and I think people are going to have to judge their own situations and whether they feel comfortable, you know, going back to work and so forth. I think, you know, regardless of the official opening, we're still going to have to do the social distancing for a long time. We're not going to be able to do large gatherings. So when we ease things, you will be able to see people a little bit more, right? You'll be able to interact a little bit more, but not having these big parties, not having these big gatherings and, and concerts and, you know, all the things that we love doing over the summer. Right. Um, we're really not going to be able to do that this summer. And who knows if we're going to be able to do it um, through the end of the year. So that's the thing. The masks, I'm glad that CDC came and told everyone to use masks. I mean, that has been a strategy that in other countries has really helped some of the infectious diseases. So I think now it's catching on with people. I think people are starting to accept the mask a little bit more. And that's going to be, you know, kind of our new normal yeah. um, for a long time government-wise. So, you know, people have to advocate for their local health departments, their state health departments for CDC, because with, without the vaccine, the testing, 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 contact tracing, antibody testing, that's going to be our only way to actually go on with life in some way. Mm -hmm. um, because otherwise, if we don't have all of that, we're going to be in the same situation where, you know, we start to go back to society, people get sick again, and the hospitals are overwhelmed. Right, exactly. And so in terms of, you know, when we go back to the African-American community, any final thoughts on 
some of the things that people can do proactively. A lot of people don't have health care. They live mm-hmm. in close proximity. What is your best advice in that area? Yeah, I mean, we're working on that in the Pittsburgh area. And what we're trying to do is get more of the community clinics um, in the areas to take on patients and take um, and do testing. Because um, early in the pandemic, we found that some of the large health systems, at least in our area, the test sites weren't very accessible to people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, people really couldn't get to the sites. Once you know that you're um, positive, then you can try to do the things with it, even within your household. So of course, you're going to stay out of society, try to stay home. Um, But even within your household, try to self-isolate, stay in one room and so forth so that you can avoid um, spreading to family members. So I, I, I don't see, I mean, I don't think it's with Within, it's totally within our control right now because we're not going to be able to social distance like this forever, right? right. Um, I think we're hopefully if we can hold on another month or so. I don't know if we're going to be able to because I don't know. I know, I know, but um, we already know we can't do this type of social distancing forever. Mm-mm. It's not sustainable. Exactly. The the only way is to catch people quickly and then isolate them. Right, right. So that they're not out there spreading. Um, right. But again, that's not even foolproof because we talked about the um, asymptomatic people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you go out, you don't have any symptoms at all. You're not going to go get tested. I don't have any um, like extremely positive right. <laughs> things to. Because well, well, I mean, it's the dire situation. But I mean, you know, we're doing the best that we can. And, and people, I have been for the most part listening. I mean, aside from the protesters and so forth, um, in our area, we're really, you know, we have um, just a little over 100 deaths. No death is, you know, it's not a good thing, but um, we've we've been able to, you know, kind of keep it, keep it low because I think people have actually been listening. I think the long game is to really look at other countries that have had this experience with uh, other infectious diseases like this and seeing that it took time. There was a vaccine eventually, but it appears as if more people survive than not. So I think that's encouraging. So it's really like if you can do the best you can to prevent getting it, you'll have a better chance of not passing it along, obviously. But if you do get it, there's a high percentage that you will survive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And most people are recovering. And so that that's the thing that, you know, even though we do have a lot of deaths. Yeah. And um, I want to, I want to, because I really want to focus on that because you're hearing all of these comparisons. More than Vietnam, more than World War, you know. Yeah, yeah. But no, the majority, the vast majority are recovering and, you know, looking at data from China and looking at the fact that so many people have recovered, um, our kind of case fatality here is higher. And and again, you have to think about the um, differences in cultural context and so forth, because in, in places like China and even Italy, they can enforce more of the, the lockdown. You know, they were actually calling it lockdown, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas we can't even enforce, I mean, remember how we closed and people were still at the beach, you know, right. or 
So, so our whole cultural context about being free to do whatever we want. Because we're a democracy. So yeah, it's, a it's very in a communist country. Exactly. It's very impactful. And so we're seeing that, which is why we have a higher, um, you know, death rate than other places, because we can't institute a lockdown the way that, that other countries can. So this is a time where Americans are really going to have to come together and start to think about the next person. It's not just about themselves. Right. Um, And so, you know, time is going to tell whether we can actually get more to an altruistic uh, place here, because that's what it's going to take. So it's going to require not just a physical distancing or social distancing response, but almost a patriotic response yeah yeah because you because you know that what you're doing is impacting someone else even if you're not impacted you could be carrying it you know to your grandmother when you go you know visit your grandmother you don't even know you have it i think this is going to really test americans in a way that we haven't seen in this lifetime anyway and there it is. Well, Dr. <laughs> Tiffany Gary Webb, my cousin. <laughs> oh my God. I, I feel like I got so much out of this conversation. Just talking it out, talking it through was mm-hmm, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I feel like other questions that people have, I think those are kind of like the basics, you know, can the virus live float in the air? Is it on mm-hmm. surface? I think there's a lot of information out there about that, but I really just wanted to talk to you about just some of the other things that we have to think about in terms of our go forward strategy in terms of there not being a vaccine. Exactly. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, and, thank you for um, having me. It was it wasn't bad. It was a nice conversation that flowed very well. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And um I will talk to you soon. Okay, take care. You too. I'm Evelyn Brooks, and you've been listening to Built by a Boss. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Tiffany Gary Webb. If you're new to the show, like this episode, and found it valuable, please take a moment to leave a five-star review and a comment. It really helps other people find us who might like the podcast. You can follow us at Built by a Boss on Instagram and Facebook, You can also find me at InMySolitudeLA.com, where we're hosting a new online workshop designed to help you increase your side income, something we all have to think about in the era of COVID-19. As always, thank you for choosing this podcast. Until next time, be kind, be brave, be better, be a boss.